Big weekend here at the Crossing and in Columbia. It started yesterday with For Columbia, in which over 700 of you joined uh, with about a thousand other Christians in Columbia that attend church somewhere and work together in our community. 46 churches, 85 work sites, about 1,700 volunteers. And we spread out all over the city and we just served nonprofits or uh, uh, did work in people's homes and neighborhoods that weren't able to afford it to bring their uh, house up to a certain kind of living and health standard. We worked with all kinds of people in our town who just needed help. And it's a sign of the way that God loves us, that we want to love others in our community. And it's a fabulous way for us as Christians to kind of change the way people think about Christianity. Not so much the things we're against, but what we're for. And we're for Jesus, of course, but because we're for him, we're also for our neighbor and for our city. So thanks to all of you that that have served in the past or served yesterday. Special shout out to Shelly Mayer and her team of volunteers. You don't coordinate that many people uh, from that many churches and that many work sites without a lot of work and effort. Also, another reason it's a big uh, day is because I want to update you on where we are with our Easter giving campaign. You probably know that every Easter we try to help people in need. One year we paid off medical debt. Another year we paid off utility debt. All in the idea that we want to be God's agent to see people's lives changed. So this year in Easter, we wanted to stay in the church. And so what we did is that we said we wanted to support a church who was just getting started in Ferguson, Missouri. It's a multi-ethnic church. It's pastored by these two guys, Sean Boone there on your left and Nathan Arnold on the right. They're trying to do a multi-ethnic church in Ferguson. And of course, you know, getting a church started anywhere at any time, much less in a pandemic, right out of a pandemic is super hard and So what we said is we want to get behind them and give them some money to help them get started. Like somebody helped us get started at The Crossing so many years ago. And so the last couple of weeks, you guys have given. And whenever The Crossing gives, not just of their time, like for Columbia, but also of your money, you go way crazy. So here's the amount that we've been able to raise, over $237,000. So that allows them to talk about Jesus and their community, love their community, set up a children's program, you know, all the things that we might take for granted. But we know because we did it when you started church, you can't take anything for granted. And so I just want you to know how much they appreciate that, that you've made sacrifices so that people in Ferguson could come together in the name of Jesus, people from different backgrounds and worship and follow him. We want to have an ongoing relationship with them. Boone, the, the lead pastor there, is coming to preach in late July here at the Crossing. And, and let me say this too. Look, it's, it's hard times economically for some people. It's kind of weird. Some people are doing fine. Some people are really struggling. And uh, to see so much generosity while some people struggle is, is, is pretty cool. And we, we as a church, for the first time in years, are just kind of struggling to make ends meet. So we, along with you, want to be thinking outside and how can we be generous? Because God will use us no matter what we can give. And so thank you for being a a part of that and praying for that church. Let's just pray for them right now before we move further. Father, we pray for for Sean and, and, and Nathan as they work in Ferguson to share the love of Jesus and to start this church. 
We pray your blessing would be on them, that you would grow their relationship with each other, their uh, relationship with people in their community. But most of all, we pray that people would come to meet and follow Jesus there in Ferguson and all of North County, St. Louis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's dive into our second sermon. It's called Making Sense of God. And we start with a professor named Hugh Moorhead. He's at Northeastern Illinois University. And several years ago, he wanted to try to figure out the meaning of life. That makes sense. He's the chairman of the philosophy department, after all. So he sent out that question, what's the meaning of life, to over 250 intellectuals, scientists, authors, you know, all the, all the smart people, and asked them what the meaning of life is. And he got back really interesting responses. Some said, I got no idea. Some said, well, here's a guess. A lot of famous smart people, they wrote back and said, hey, I don't know, but if you find it out, will you write me a letter and tell me what it is? Because I don't know what it is. Now, you would think that we would know the meaning or purpose of our own life. And yet the reality is that's a harder question than, than maybe you, you think. Like your birth certificate can tell you when you were born, but it can't tell you why you were born. Your alarm clock can tell you when to get up, but it can't tell you to why to get up. If you just listen to, to what people are saying around you, like if you read the magazines, the newspaper articles, if you just kind of listen to what's going on that's causing the rise in opioid addiction? What's going on that's, that's causing the rise in mental health issues? What's causing the anger on social media or, or in politics? And what you find is this consistent theme that, that one of the things going on in all those areas is that people feel like their lives are empty, meaningless. They don't know what they're to live for. They don't know their own purpose. Now, that doesn't mean these people don't have like a good job and family and friends. It doesn't mean that. What it means is they don't understand the point. Where's any of that going of their job, family, and friends? You know, maybe you remember what it was like to be in grade school, and maybe a parent or a teacher would tell you, you need to study hard and get good grades. And you probably go, well, why do I need good grades? <laughs> and they go, well, because you need to get into a good college. Well, why do I need to go to a good college? And they're like, well, well, so you can get a good job. And you're like, okay, hang on. So I need to get good grades to get into a good college, to get a good job. And why do I need that? So you can take care of your family and yell at your kids to get good grades, you know? That there's a sense in which we all live on this cycle, that we're chasing, this, this, chasing our tail like we're on a hamster wheel. We're going and going and going. But don't you want off that? Don't you want off the hamster wheel? You're not even sure why you're doing this other than that's what you've been told to do or that's what the person before you did. But don't you want to get off that? Don't you, what you really want is to live your life, not just for the next thing, but for something that really matters. There's a book I read a couple years ago uh, called Being Mortal. It's by Atul Gawanda. Incredibly interesting book. It talks about aging and how none of us are good at aging. And our systems and structures are not set up to help people age well. And one of the evidences that that's true is he kind of points to nursing homes. And nursing homes are intended to house and feed and keep people safe. But you ever notice that nobody wants to end up in a nursing home? We do our best to avoid nursing homes. Well, why? 
Because we know that we were created for more than to, just to be kept alive. And, and, and one of the things he tells, one of the stories he tells in this book is about a, a, an administrator, like a, a, a program director who comes into this nursing home. Now, he's going to be in charge. He's a doctor. He's going to be in charge. And this nursing home that he tells the story about had all the same problems you've seen in every nursing home that you've ever been into. But this guy does something kind of creative. What he does is, is he starts bringing animals into the nursing home. Like we're talking some like pet kind of animals, like cats and dogs, parakeets, but we're talking farm animals, you know, like uh, ducks and chicken and rabbits and, and, and those kind of animals too. And, and what they said is that the changes inside the nursing home, once all those animals showed up, were dramatic. People who hadn't spoken in years and they thought couldn't speak, started speaking. People who hadn't walked in years and they thought couldn't walk, started walking. And the reason they were speaking and walking is because they wanted to take care of the animals. So they would ask things like, can I take the dogs for the walk? Can I take the parakeet to my room? That, that, that one of the things they noticed is that the psychotropic drugs that they had to use to keep people kind of calm and uh, uh, maybe you might even say in that catatonic state that, that we're familiar with, they, they didn't need those drugs as much anymore. The people were living longer. Now, why is that? What, what happened? Well, here's what the program director, the guy who had to put all this together said. He said, I believe that the difference in death rates and all the positive things they were seeing in the nursing home can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. Every human being, no matter their age, no matter their race, no matter where they're from, no matter how much money they have, we all need a fundamental reason to live. We were created for more than just to be housed, fed, and kept safe. But remember, we don't know what our meaning is. That's why the philosophy department chair could send out a letter and nobody could really answer the question. Well, I don't know. So what does our, our culture tell us to do? Well, if we don't know the meaning of life collectively, then you just get to make up for one for yourself individually. Create your own meaning in life. And, and when people do that, inevitably what most people will create for themselves and for the people in their family is be happy. The meaning of my life, the purpose of my life is to be as happy as I can for as long as I can. What do I want for my kids? Well, I want them to be happy. Now, here's the thing. We, we just kind of know from the Bible, but just from our own experience, that when happiness becomes your goal, you are never going to be happy. When happiness is the goal, you're never going to be happy. Happiness can be a byproduct of a life well lived, but it can't be the goal, the purpose, the meaning of your life. And one reason for that is because when happiness is your goal, then every hard thing, every challenge, every difficult thing, every disappointment, even suffering, when it comes into your life, is seen as your enemy because you, uh, are, it interferes with you being happy. But here's the deal. We live in a world that is full of hard things, disappointment, challenges, heartbreaks, even suffering. I mean, there's no way we can escape that in this world. So if all of our troubles always end up uh, eroding our personal happiness, then how is it that it's ever going to be accomplished? That's not a purpose worth living for. We need a purpose that could withstand the trials and suffering and hardships that come into our life. 
So that's what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus gives us a purpose for our life. And when we live for the purpose that he gives us, well, it transforms. That purpose transforms all the hardships from enemies and they become friends. They become our friends. All right, let's see that in the gospel of John. Here's uh, the story as it starts in John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha, they had a special relationship with Jesus. Whenever Jesus was in Bethany, their hometown where they lived, he'd stop in there. He tried to spend the night whenever he was there. And John makes a point to tell us that it was Mary uh, who had anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So of all the thousands of people that Jesus interacted with, these people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they had a special relationship with them. They had a kind of an intimate, personal friendship. It says that Jesus loved them, that, 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 that they understood who Jesus was and what he was about, probably better than his own disciples. So that's what makes what comes next in the story so strange, because let's look at it. Here's what's next. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what, what the, at least it doesn't make sense to us because what this is saying is that because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. Because he loved them, he didn't run to them when he heard the news that Lazarus was ill. Because he loved them, he let Lazarus die and Mary and Martha experience the pain, uh, disappointment when something really hard comes into someone's life you care about and maybe it even takes their life from them. That, that's a strange kind of love, isn't it? I mean, it almost makes you and I to think, well, maybe he didn't really love them. At a bare minimum, it means that, that Jesus's love for them is much different than the, than the way we think about loving another person. Because according to us, according to our definition of love, if Jesus really loved them, what he should have done is as soon as he heard the news, he should have immediately went to Lazarus and, and cured him and healed him and not let him die. And if he was going to let him die, if he really loved him, he would immediately raise him, not wait a few days. I mean, it would be better yet if he just never let him die at all. But you see, what you begin to see is that our definition of love is really different than Jesus's. Because what we start to think is that love is, love is doing whatever you can to make another person be happy, right? And so that means that, that you want them to experience a pain-free, hassle-free, disappointing life. But that's not Jesus's definition of love. And if you get those two definitions confused, if you think that Jesus' love for us is the way that our culture defines love, then you're gonna be really confused about what God is doing in your life. Because when, when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't run 
to him. And that's because he loves them so much that he's going to stay away. Now, how does that make sense? Why does love compel him to stay away? Well, the answer the Bible gives is that it's because Jesus has something better to give Lazarus than physical life. The reason it's loving for Jesus to stay away is he has something better to give Mary and Martha than a, a life without disappointment and pain. Now, 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 I hope you're connecting the dots here. Because what that also means then is that Jesus has something better to give you than a life that turns out the way you want it to turn out. So, so what's this better thing? What's the, what's the better thing that Jesus have that's better than life, that's better than a life without pain? Well, it's a life lived according to God's purpose. It's a life lived according to the real purpose you were created for. It's a life that is lived for a purpose that can withstand suffering and pain. Let's go back to uh, verse four, a verse we've already read, but let's go back and look at it again. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of man may be glorified through it. Well, we all know the story, so we know this illness did lead to a physical death. But what we hear here in this verse, in Jesus' words, is, that, is, is the purpose that God created us for. Because it turns out that, yes, our culture is confused about the meaning of life, very confused. But the right response isn't to create your own purpose. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure novel, Right? The, the right response to our cultural confusion about the meaning of life is not to create your own, but to discover the purpose that God already has for you. Your God-given purpose, not your self-created purpose. See, when your purpose becomes to be happy, that's a sure way to find yourself in misery. But when you pursue God's purpose, when you pursue God's plan, when you live for something bigger than yourself, when you live for something that lasts beyond the grave, then you find real happiness. So Jesus loves you so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes. He was willing to let Lazarus die in order for Lazarus to see the purpose which he'd been created for. So if, if he was going to be willing to let Lazarus die, then he's willing to let you lose your job or let you go through a serious illness or let you go through a season of, of marital strife or, or whatever the hardships that come your way in life are. He loves you so much that he's willing to let you do that because what he wants you to see is he wants you to, to, to grasp the purpose which you were created for, the real purpose that leads to real and lasting happiness, which is to live for him. See, it, it, you were created for God's glory. It means you'll only be satisfied with God's glory. But that means, just follow it for a second, that means it would be unloving. Unloving if Jesus let you go on your merry way and, and have a life that turns out the way you want it to. That'd be one of the most unloving things that he could do for you. Because when things are going well for you, like when things are successful or you've kind of got this inner peace or you're prosperous, whether that's financially or relationally or whatever, you know, it's in those good times, all that, that never, those good times never provide the fertile ground for your faith to grow in. 
It never happens that way. Because when good things are happening, what it does, I wish it didn't, it just does, it deadens our spiritual senses and it causes us, you know it because you've seen it in your own life, it causes us to push God to the side. Things are going well, I push God to the periphery. I put myself at the center. I start living for my happiness. See, nobody ever says, I mean, how many times have you ever heard someone say, hey man, when I got all those promotions and my job was going just like I wanted, my career really took off, that's when I really started trusting God. Hey, when my health was great and everything was perfect in my family, and that's when I really learned what's important and my values were shaped. And No. That's when I really started reading my Bible. No. What does everybody say? It's in those times that I was hurting. It's in those times I was lonely. It was in those times where it was difficult. It was in those times when I felt alone. It was in those times when I was in pain. That's where God grew my faith. That's where he turned me toward him. That's where I learned to to trust him. It's when I went to school and people made fun of me. It's when I went to move and I was was lonely. It It was in those times when I lost my job that I started to depend and trust on God when I learned my real purpose in life was not my own happiness. So that's a radically different definition of love. Our culture says, keep people, keep pain, keep hardship away from people. And Jesus says, no, I love them so much, I'm gonna bring it right into their life. I'm gonna bring those challenges right into their life. That's how much I love them. So what do you do? What do you do with the pain and suffering and disappointment? Do you use that? Do you let it draw you closer to God? Or do you push back? My friend Anna Lynn has been wrestling with those questions and I want her to tell you her story. My name's Anna Lynn and I have spent most of my 20s in this season of preparation. I felt really confident about what God was calling me to do. And in my head, I was just thinking, you know, I've got this plan, I've got these things I need to get done. And as soon as I get to graduation, as soon as I finish graduate school, I'll be able to really start my life and be here in Columbia and be with my work and with my friends, with my family. A little over a year ago, I started feeling this deep, constant pain. Like I was, like I'd been like stabbed with just a blunt object and nothing helped it. There wasn't relief. It wasn't like laying down made it better or or sitting made it better. It was just unlike anything I felt before. And it, it hurt all the time so much. And it got worse and worse until I ended up in the hospital where the doctors were concerned because I had developed Crohn's disease and it had been wrecking me. My doctor put it that I have an unusually aggressive presentation of Crohn's disease. And so now as I'm recovering from that specific acute trauma, I'm also trying to figure out how to cope with this long-term disease that will be with me for the rest of my life. I wish I had the kind of Crohn's where I could just cut out dairy and be okay. Actually, I wish I didn't have Crohn's at all, but I think that Crohn's disease doesn't have, isn't always just this horrible life-ruining thing. But for me, it, it has been more than it hasn't. 
If I'm honest, when I'm at my lowest, my prayers are really messy. It's me being kind of fed up with God, saying, you know what, just leave, just leave me alone. Let me do things my way. I don't know that I want to be part of what you're doing because I don't like how it's going right now. When the future feels too scary to contemplate, when the reality of a chronic illness feels too big, I am encouraged by this reality that I'm not my own and I'm not supposed to be in control. And then I prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. And God handed me my Crohn's disease. And that wasn't an accident. God is working things together for his good purpose. And it's the means by which he's making me more like Jesus. And my way forward isn't one of figuring figuring it out or fixing it. It's one of faithfulness and resting and trusting that God is good. And that he has a vision for my life that is bigger than what I maybe planned or what I hoped for. You hear the power of purpose, the power of God's purpose and living for his purpose in your life that is able to to turn hardships and difficulties and trials and unplanned moments and curveballs and even suffering. Take it from being your enemy and transform it to your friend because it pushes you further down the path of God's purpose for your life. Imagine, imagine two women and they've been given the same job and it's a really tedious, horrible, boring, you know, mind-numbing job. And it's in miserable working conditions. They're working in two different places, but the job is horrible. The place they're doing it is horrible. The people they work with is horrible. As bad as you can imagine, right? And, and let's say they're the exact same. In our little thought experiment, these two women, they come from the same socioeconomic background. They're the same personality, same strengths and weaknesses. Now, uh, at, at the end of a couple weeks, one of the women go to the other one and says, man, this job's horrible. I, I'm thinking about quitting. Like, I can't keep doing this. It's just not worth it. And the other one says, well, I don't know what you mean. I, I love my job. And like, you do? And they go, well, of course. I, I whistle while I work, Right. Now, now, what's the difference? Oh, I forgot to tell you one thing. This first woman, she was told at the end of the year, the one that was complaining, that she would get $30,000 for her job. At the, this other woman over here, the one who was whistling while she worked, was told that she would get $30 million at the end of the year. Well, you can imagine that living for this purpose allows you to, to, to think differently about the hardships and the boring and the bad environment and all that, right? If I can do this for a year, it's worth it. But the point here is obviously not $30 million is worth it. It's that you can have your mind fixed on a purpose greater than your circumstances and it will push you through, allow you to keep going, allow you to, to, to persevere. But I got something that's better than $30 million because any amount of money, we all know from our own experience, leaves you empty. But what if you had something to live for was greater? What if you could live for God's glory and God's purpose in your life, a purpose that lasted beyond the grave, a purpose that wasn't something you created on your own, but was given by the God who loves you and knows you and created you? So let's go back to a verse we, we read earlier when we were singing. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
Like this isn't trying to minimize the troubles. It's not trying to minimize the hardships. It's, hardships are hard. It's really difficult. It's a season, maybe a long season, maybe a lifetime of, of suffering or being in pain or being emotionally heartbroken. I don't want to minimize them at all. It's just that Paul here, inspired by God, calls them light and momentary. Well, how can he call the things that we're wrestling with light and momentary? Because compared to the glory, the point isn't to minimize the, the troubles. It's to say how much greater the glory, how much greater the glory of God's purpose that when you live for his glory, the hard things you're going through seem light and momentary and our eyes become fixed, not on what we see, our happiness, our day-to-day circumstances, but on something that we can't see, God's purpose. Can't see God's glory because we know that that's what will bring real and lasting happiness. That is what we were created for. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we pray that you would allow our eyes to fix on that which is unseen, on your purpose for our life. We get so distracted by everything in our life that comes along, and especially ourselves. Help us take our eyes off ourselves and put them on you, Jesus. Pray for all those people who today are suffering, who are facing hardships and trials and difficulties that feel overwhelming. And we pray that you might make your presence with them known, that they might feel your love for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.